can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, and as you're turning there, if anybody's still standing, we've got, we've got prime seats right up here. The Walsh's, got seat, nobody's going to sit in those, so right here. Ryan's got a seat next to him. Buck and Val, they, they would love company. These are the best seats right here. Might even get used as an illustration. All right. Um, does uh, anybody remember uh, WWJD? It was really popular back in uh, the 1990s. That's when it first came out because uh, this book was re-released. It actually is a book from the 1890s called In His Steps, subtitle, What Would Jesus Do? by Charles Sheldon. When I was in high school in the 80s, a friend of mine found this book and he read it and uh, he got really excited about it. He gave it to me. I read it. I thought, this is awesome. And we decided together as high school students that this is what we would do. Right, So it's about a city in which the Christians decide before they think anything, take any action, say any word, they're going to ask themselves, what would Jesus do? So we decided that's what we're going to do in our high school. We're going to say to ourselves, what would Jesus do? And so we tried that for a few weeks and we failed terribly. Right, Probably because we didn't have the bracelets yet. They hadn't come out. <laughs> but you know, as we were talking about it, we're like, man, you know, this just doesn't seem fair. What would Jesus do? Well, <laughs> obviously the right thing all the time, every time, he's Jesus. He doesn't even have to ask the question, right? He, he gets it. What would I do? And he would do it because he's God, God in human flesh. It just doesn't seem fair. Is Jesus really a valid example for us to follow since he's God in human flesh? Have you ever wondered that? Can we follow the example of Jesus? If you look at 1 Peter chapter 2 that Lance read earlier in verse 21, that's exactly what Peter says. He says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Jesus Christ, we're told in Hebrews, is like a trailblazer. And he's laying a pathway. And the image that comes to my mind is footprints in the snow. And all that you have to do is step where he stepped. If you want to be safe, you want to be secure, and you, you want your life to be significant and matter, you just step in the steps that Jesus took. But Peter piles on another analogy to make the point. He says, leaving you an example. It's a very vivid word if you were a, a reader in the Greek text. It's the word that was used for the method of training children how to write their ABCs okay, or their alphabet gammas, as the case may be. Letters that you trace. Okay? written on a chalkboard, and then the student follows the example. It was also used of a young artist who wants to learn to paint like a master. The master's painting is put up there, and then the young student follows the pattern, traces, and does it over and over and over again to get that pattern into his own life and into his own mind, into his own heart, his own way of thinking and living and acting and breathing. And Peter says, that's what we do with Jesus Christ. We meditate so that we can imitate the example of Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, we're going to talk about what it looks like specifically in our lives and how to do it this morning. I want you to turn with me back to the gospel of Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13. Remember, as we began last week, I made the observation that I think a lot of you agreed with. There's a lot of stuff in the gospels that you read it and you go, what in the world? <laughs> what, what was Jesus talking about? What was he thinking? Why did he do that? Uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 and following is one of those illustrations for me. 
Verse 13, it says, Jesus arrived from Galilee at Jordan coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. I'm with John. I say, if Jesus came to me and he said, Brian, would you baptize me? So you kidding, Jesus? What do you, I need to be baptized by you. Why would you come to me to be baptized? Does, has that ever struck you as strange that Jesus, the eternal son of God, would come to John the Baptist to be baptized? Well, it bothered John as well. He said, I don't think so, Jesus. And then Jesus gives kind of a cryptic answer. He says, well, we need to fulfill all righteousness at this time. And so I think John just gave in. All right, well, plenty of water. Go ahead, Jesus, you're in charge. You are Messiah after all. And he lets him do it. What was he talking about? I think what's happening in the baptism of Jesus is simply that Jesus is identifying himself with the message of John. John has come as a forerunner to the Messiah to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus has come along and he's saying, I'm aligning myself with the message of John. I am the embodiment of his message. And in so doing, Jesus is setting aside anything that might be his own will, separate from God, and he is completely embracing the will of God for his life. That's the first step that we follow in following Jesus. Surrendering our will to the will of the Father. When Jesus went down and he was baptized by John and he identified himself with the message of John, he was taking on the mantle of Messiah that he knew would end in a cruel and vicious, painful death and taking on the entire sins of all humanity for all time. And Jesus said, I'm in. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. You see this pattern at the very beginning of Jesus' life and then throughout his life. Let me illustrate it for you from the Gospel of John. Chapter 5, Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I don't know if that phrase has ever struck you as strange either. The eternal Son of God says, I can't do anything on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Here's the will of God, and I put my will right underneath his. I align my will with the will of the Father so that I'm not doing anything on my own initiative. I'm just following. John chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father has taught me. John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. John 12, 49, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. John 14, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Do you see the pattern? From the very beginning of the life of Jesus all the way to the end, Jesus is living in complete submission to the will of the Father. And at that climactic moment, at the end of Jesus' life, where he's about to go to the cross and he's in the garden, he says to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. 
And that is the pattern for us, men and women, as believers in Jesus Christ, to live well begins with submitting our wills to the Father. Jesus said of the disciples who were following after him, he said, if anyone wants to continue following after me, this is what he should do. Say no to yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. My life is a cross life. It's a life where I've surrendered my rights. I've surrendered my will. And if you want to follow me, this is the pattern of life. You surrender your own will. That is a radical, radical statement. When was the last time you were in the midst of a trial or a difficulty or temptation and you said, God, not my will, but yours be done? When was the last time you were in the midst of something that you really didn't want to have happen in your life and you said, thank you, God, Thank you for bringing that into my life. I embrace whatever you bring into my life. Not my will, but yours be done. One of the reasons we don't experience the power of God in our lives is because we don't start with this statement every day. Let him take up his cross daily. And sometimes when we're really getting hammered by Satan, it's actually moment by moment, minute by minute, not my will, but yours be done. Now notice what happens right after Jesus' baptism. Back in chapter 3, verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Okay, there you go again. Why did Jesus need to have the Spirit come upon him? If Jesus is the eternal son of God, didn't he always have the spirit? Oh, but wait a second. We're Trinitarians. There's God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. They're all separate persons. But didn't he always have the spirit upon him? Well, no, apparently not. Apparently at a point in time, the spirit of God came upon Jesus. Why? Well, if you were a a, a Jewish person reading this text, and Matthew was written to the Jews, then you heard that terminology and you knew immediately what he's talking about. Because in the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon people. It happened all the time. And when the Spirit came upon people, their lives became directed by the will of God and empowered by the Spirit. The Spirit came upon the prophets and they spoke the word of God. The Spirit came upon David and he fought against God's enemies. Interestingly, the first illustration in the Old Testament of someone being filled by the Spirit is a man named Bezalel. God says, I have filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. He was the one who led all of the craftsmen in creating utensils for the worship of God in the tabernacle. God's Spirit came upon him and empowered him to create these tools for worship. God was in control of his life. Paul picks up this terminology in other New Testament writers of filling. It's the same idea. God's Spirit came upon a person or God's Spirit filled a person and God empowered that person to walk according to the pattern that was laid out in Jesus Christ. That was the power that Jesus depended upon and nothing else. You and I have exactly that same power to live by in our lives. Remember last semester, we were studying Galatians. We looked at uh, the different covenants. We looked at the Abrahamic and Mosaic and Davidic and New Covenants and how they all fit together. And what we observed is that the sign of the New Covenant is the possession of the Spirit. 
Because Jesus Christ was obedient to God's will in his life and he took on the sins of the world, God raised him from the dead, validating that God had accepted that sacrifice. God raised him from the dead and then God exalted him to his right hand and gave him the gift of the spirit that he could give to us. And so in Jesus' lifetime, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet ascended and received that gift. But now that we are in the age of the church, the spirit has been given to everyone who believes. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are indwelled by the spirit. The moment that you believe, the debt of all of your sins is removed. You possess life that will last forever, eternal life, and you are indwelled by God's spirit. However, you don't always experience the power of God's spirit in your life, often because we go through our daily lives and say to God, not your will, but mine be done. This is the image that Paul is trying to get through in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, Ephesians chapter 5, the whole section there is controlled by the phrase, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitate God, be like God, follow the pattern of God as his beloved children. How do you do that? Well, he starts by saying, get rid of all of these things that are part of the will of your flesh. Say no to your flesh. And then say yes to God. Do not get drunk with wine. Don't be filled with something that controls your behavior and enables your flesh to be in control, but instead be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Then you can reach out in genuine love and ministry to other people because you're not worried about your own will. Think about Peter's example. Great illustration. Peter was asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus said, that's right. Man, you're right on the money. Peter, you got it. And then Jesus goes on and he says, now you need to understand something about being Christ. When I got baptized by John, I, I embraced Messiah, I'm the Messiahship. I am the Christ. And because I'm the Christ, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. And I'm going to be raised from the dead. This is the will of God for me. And what did Peter say? Jesus, not your will, but mine be done. Jesus, that's not the kind of Messiah I signed up for. No, Lord, it will not be. It will not be. And Peter goes on and later and he's making all kinds of bold pronouncements. Well, Jesus, you know, if you're going to go to the cross, well, then I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I won't abandon you. All the rest of these 11 guys, they're losers. But I, Jesus, I'm there for you. And then in the moment of temptation, people walk up to him and say, hey, aren't you one of his followers? No, 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 not me. Not me. Three times it happens, aren't yeah, you, you're, you're with Jesus. No, 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 so it wasn't me. But you sound like you're from Galilee, uh, not me. And then the cock crows. He sees Jesus' eyes and he melts in shame. He weeps. He goes into his inner room and hides in a corner, fearful, crying, shameful, weeping. And then a few days later, we see Peter standing in Jerusalem, preaching that Jesus is the Christ, putting his life at risk, He could be imprisoned, he could be beaten, he could be crucified himself, and he's absolutely fearless. What happened? He stopped saying, my will be done, and he said to God, your will be done, and God poured out his spirit upon him at Pentecost, and he became a new man. 
And you will become a new man and a new woman when you say, God, not my will be done, your will be done. And in that process, God fills you and controls you with his spirit. And it happens day by day, moment by moment. And notice the pattern. Jesus identifies himself with the will of God through baptism. He comes up out of the water and the spirit of God comes upon him. Then he turns and he's led by the spirit into the wilderness to do warfare with God's enemy. Look with me in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. Luke 4 verse 1. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. How was he filled with the Holy Spirit? Because he aligned his will with the will of the Father, and the Father sent the Spirit upon him. He is controlled by the power of the Spirit. He is guided by the will of God. He returned from the Jordan where he was baptized, and he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry, which is one of the greatest understatements in the entire Bible. 40 days, man, four hours. I'm ready to go, right? He's hungry. But it's been the Spirit's will that he be hungry and that he be tested. What we often overlook is there weren't just three temptations. He's been led around for 40 days being tested. It was God's will to lead him into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. Why? Because God is holding up Jesus as a paradigm for our lives. When a man or a woman lives with their will subjected to the Father under the power of the Spirit, we can follow the example of Jesus Christ. We can overcome temptation, we can overcome sin, and we can do battle with God's enemy. We can bring God glory and shame to Satan when we are living this way. And Jesus is a paradigm for us in that. God takes him into the wilderness This wilderness is, it's named Yeshimon. It means literally the devastation. It's because there's nothing out there. I've seen it. It's it's dirt and rocks. So Mark tells us that there's dirt and rocks and wild animals and Satan and God's representative. That's it. It's a battleground. Dirt, rocks, wild animals, Satan, and God's representative. And they're doing battle. And it's highly significant that God took Jesus into this battleground, this specific one. This is a paradigm also. Okay? It's a pattern in scripture. God has taken his representative into the wilderness before to be tested. So that his representative could bring him honor and bring shame to his adversary. God brought his representative Israel into the wilderness to do just this very thing. But what happened with the nation of Israel? They failed miserably. Keep your place here and turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and he let you be hungry. 
And he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus quotes when Jesus is in exactly the same place, in the same wilderness. But when Israel went into the wilderness, and they were only out there a few days, and they began to be hungry, and they ran out of food to eat, and there's only rocks... And there's no immediate provision. They didn't turn to the word of the Lord. That is, the promises of God that he would always provide for them. They didn't turn to his word. What did they do? They grumbled and they whined and they complained. They didn't think back and say, God has always been faithful to us. God rescued us. He took us out of slavery in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He crushed Pharaoh's army behind us. He's provided water for us. He will provide. God, now we're in hunger. Will you meet our need? No, they just grumbled and complained and they they fought against authority. They were bitter. And what the gospel writer is showing us is Jesus is the perfect Israelite. Jesus is the perfect man. Where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. And where Jesus has succeeded, you can succeed if you follow in his pattern. And so this is the will of God for your life as well, to surrender your will to the will of the Father, to be empowered by the Spirit, and then to go do battle with God's enemy so that you bring glory to God and shame to Satan. That's God's will for your life. That's God's will for all of his disciples' lives. Look with me in Luke again, chapter 10. And verse 1. Luke 10.1, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Stop right there. I think they were so fired up to be chosen that they missed that point. (laughs) If I had heard that, I'd say, wait a second, I'm not sure I want that assignment. I'd rather be the wolf in the midst of the lambs. He said, no, 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 I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out to do warfare against my enemies. Notice verse 17, they come back and this is their report. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Boys, that was awesome. Man, you did warfare and Satan was brought to shame because you operated in my name. My will, you went where I told you to go and you went with my power and you went with my authority and it worked, didn't it? Because this is the pattern of life and this is God's will for your life. Turn with me to Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, that is the angelic hosts, angels and demons, they came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, 
Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Have you seen, Satan, have you seen Job? He's amazing. He fears me. He walks in uprightness and integrity. He turns away from evil. He honors me with his life. He brings glory to me. And so now I'm holding him up in front of all the angelic hosts and he's bringing shame to you, Satan, because he walks with me. He's, he's the lesser creature. He's a man. He's not as strong or as powerful or as intelligent as the angelic forces. And yet he's having victory over the angelic forces because he's walking in my power and in my name. Have you thought about Job? And Satan says, yeah, I thought about him. Let me at him. And I'll crush him and he'll dishonor you and he'll bring shame to your name. And so Satan goes after him, goes after his family and his his houses are are blown down and he has hailstorms come upon him. And then second time comes and he strikes his body. He's got boils all over his body and yet he never dishonors the Lord. He honors God with his life. Job is not unusual. Job is not an outlier. You are Job. Okay. God's design for your life is just like Job. You may say, I don't want to be Job. <laughs> I don't want boils in my house knocked down by hail. I don't want those things. Every moment of every day, God is holding up his children because he wants to bring honor and glory to himself through his children. He's saying, have you considered my servant Ryan? Look at the way that he walks with me in uprightness. And Satan's saying, can I have permission to sift him like wheat like I did to Peter? I think I can break him. And Jesus Christ is praying for you. He is interceding before the Father so that you will stand firm and you will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ throughout the earth and everywhere that you go. This is the typical pattern of life. Job 1 is typical. Because we are engaged in spiritual warfare. This, men and women, is what God wants to do through our lives. But we will get crushed if we don't walk with our wills completely submitted to the Father, empowered by the Spirit. When we do, however, follow the example and the pattern of Jesus Christ, we overcome temptation and sin and we honor God in our lives. One of the problems is, for for a lot of us, is we don't even acknowledge the fact that we are in the middle of spiritual warfare. Even at this moment, there's angelic battle going on so that our minds would be distracted, we wouldn't hear this truth or we wouldn't believe it, we wouldn't own it, we wouldn't embrace it and say, yeah, things need to change and adjust in my life and I can step forward in this way. And there is battle going on even right now. I love that scene uh, in Elisha's ministry where he's in a city and he's surrounded by a foreign army and his servant is panicked. He says, Elisha, we're surrounded, we're gonna get killed, they're gonna come in and get us and kill us all. And Elisha's just you know, kicking back, enjoying a Hebrew cappuccino or something. I mean, he's just totally relaxed. And, and he says, God, would you show him what's really going on? And graciously, the Lord pulls back the veil of heaven. And as he looks past, the servant looks past the earthly armies, he sees the heavenly armies. He sees angelic forces, which are scary, according to all description, big and strong and mighty and powerful. And he sees these heavenly hosts of armies surrounding them and his whole perspective changes. But he realizes we are in the midst of spiritual 
warfare. That's the reality. Daniel, when he prays, he prays and he prays and he's waiting on the Lord and finally an angel is sent to him and the angel says, I was doing battle over here with another angelic force, but someone came and relieved me so that I could come and speak to you, but I've got to go back and keep doing battle over here. These are the battles that are waging and and they're waged when we pray. Because when we pray, we're submitting our wills to the Father. When we pray, we're expressing our deep dependence on the will of God and the power of God. That's why prayer is so powerful. But if we don't acknowledge there is, in fact, a battle going on, we're in trouble. We need to train for this battle. And part of our study of the life of Jesus is for just that purpose, to train us to walk according to the pattern that we see in the life of Christ. How do we do that? Well, I want you to turn again to the Gospels with me, Gospel of John this time, chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus is speaking to some of his adversaries, and he says, For you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him whatsoever. Whenever he speaks a lie, he is simply speaking from his own nature. For he is a liar and he is the father of lies. If we want to survive and conquer in this battle, first of all, we need to expect confrontation. This is the will of God for you. Second, we need to train for it. The way that we train is we understand our enemy. His basic strategy is deceit. He lies. You need to study over and over and over and over again Genesis 1 through 3. Okay? Genesis 1 through 3 is foundational for understanding who you are and how, how all this battle plays out in your life. Genesis 3 will help you understand what are the kinds of lies that Satan always throws at God's people. Okay? Because he always follows some of these same patterns. You need to understand Genesis 1 through 3. You also need to really study deeply Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where Jesus is in the wilderness battling against these patterns of temptation and deceit that Satan throws at him, because it's a paradigm for us in our lives. Okay, turn with me back to Luke again, chapter 4. And we're going to look at this pattern just briefly. Luke chapter 4. Says Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the from the Jordan, and he was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. Uh, in other words, there have been a lot of temptations. He's been tempted for forty days. I think the Spirit picked out three that serve as uh, representatives, illustrations. These are the kinds of temptations that Satan always throws at God's people. I think they break down according to the pattern that John talked about, First John chapter two: lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Okay? Just about all the temptations that you face kind of fit into these categories. So let's look at the three temptations that Jesus faced. Beginning in verse 3. Okay? Jesus had fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Did Jesus have the power to make stones into bread? 
Absolutely, right? I mean, first he's creator of the universe, but we also know that when God's other representative, Israel, was in the same wilderness, he pretty much made stones into bread for two million people. He can make stones into bread for himself. He has the power to do it. But he knows it's not the will of God at that time for him to satisfy his physical appetite in that manner. It's a legitimate need. If you haven't eaten 40 days, the body is designed to take in food. He needs to eat physically. But it's not God's timing, and it's not God's manner that Jesus would use his own power independently. It's God's will that he depend upon the word of God to empower him to overcome temptation at this point in time. Same kind of temptations face us. Maybe you're, you're single and you're lonely. And you have a desire, which is a legitimate desire, to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, and you want it really badly. And then someone comes into your life who could fill that need, and they're interested, and you're attracted. But he or she is not a Christian or is not walking with the Lord the way you want to walk with the Lord. You could take the initiative. You could make it happen. You could satisfy your need. But you know it's not God's will and this is not God's way. Will you be fed by the word of God or will you take matters into your own hands? Okay, that's the first basic temptation. Lust of the flesh or physical appetites most of the time, legitimate appetites. Second, lust of the eyes. Verse five. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Satan, get away from me because you don't really have authority over the world. No, Satan does. We're told throughout the New Testament that right now the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but not forever. Someday, Jesus' creator will also be heir of all things and ruler of all things, but not yet. So what's the temptation? The temptation is, Jesus, you can have all of that that's been set aside for you, and you can have it without going to the cross in between. You don't have to suffer and you don't have to take on the sins of the world. You can go straight from where you are in the wilderness to being heir of all things. And you can bypass the trials and the temptation and the faithfulness required to receive the reward from God. Satan does exactly the same thing with us. Take a shortcut to get to where you want to be. It's desire to possess at no personal cost, no sacrifice. Third, the pride of life. Verse 9. He led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time, until he could come back and he could find Jesus vulnerable once again. And he did. The nature of this temptation, I think, is understood if you realize that he's probably not talking about standing at the top of the temple building. 
He's talking about standing at the high point of the platform, the Temple Mount, on which the temple was constructed. There was a corner that was the highest point. And below it, there was a road that went from north to south through Jerusalem. It was the main thoroughfare. On the sides, there were uh, small shops. This is where all the vendors would bring their goods. And so it was basically a big marketplace. And Jesus has been stood by Satan at the pinnacle. If he jumps off, he'll jump right down into the midst of a crowd. And if he jumps right down into the midst of the crowd, into the very middle of Jerusalem, the heart of the commercial district, and then angels come down and grab him right before he falls. Wow, that's dramatic. And they will say, that's God's Messiah. Prove that God cares about you. Prove that you matter to God. Prove that you are the Messiah. Jesus doesn't have to do that because he possesses the word of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He already knows he's pleasing to God. He already knows he's accepted by God. He doesn't need the praise of anyone else because he has the approval of God. And you and I often labor and spend all of our energy to earn the praise and the approval of others. When we already have received the approval of God, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased because they are in my son Christ and I'm pleased with him. We need to study our adversary. What are the patterns of temptation that he brings into your life in particular? Be humble enough to say, these are my vulnerabilities. You know, this is where he gets me. He gets me on one, two, or three. And over and over again, he seems to keep coming back in these areas, and I need to understand his strategies and my own vulnerabilities. And I need to master the weapons that Jesus Christ has given to me. I need to see the pattern in Christ's life that if I really want to honor Christ with my life, where it begins is by saying no to myself and my own will, and saying yes to the will of God. God, your will be done today. Whatever it is that I had set for my life and my agenda and my future on this day, God, I relinquish it and say, whatever your will, may it be done. And when you do that, you can become filled or empowered by God's Spirit. But you can't be empowered by God's Spirit when you're embracing your own will. And then you need to master the Word of God. Every time that Jesus is tempted, he doesn't turn to divine power to solve his problem. He turns to the same resource that you and I have. He turns to the word of God. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. By the third temptation, Satan's getting the pattern. And so he tries to tempt Jesus with a quotation from scripture. And Jesus says, out of context, out of context, out of context. I know Bible study methods. You can't trick me. Okay? Because I was in a Bible study at Grace Bible Church. I know the word of God. I know it. Okay? And I exhort you. You need to be in the word of God for yourself. If this is your only diet of the word of God on a weekly basis, you will not become strong in the word. This is secondhand. This is stuff I studied and now I'm giving it to you secondhand. You need to be personally in the word of God with a, a humble attitude. It's not just about the quantity of time in the word. It's the attitude. You come to the word of God saying, thy will be done. And you search the scriptures and you know the scriptures and you spend a lifetime digging and memorizing and meditating. And it is power in your life. You need to set a pattern for that. 
You also need to be in a place consistently where you are interacting with other believers about the word of God. That is where I work out my, my, my best theology when I'm discussing and debating and arguing and I'm seeing how someone else is applying God's will to their life and, and, I'm, and I'm convicted by that and I'm challenged and I learn and I grow. That is how God has designed it. That's really genuine biblical fellowship. We're all moving in the same direction. We want to honor God with our lives and so we take this powerful weapon, the sword of the spirit, and we let it pierce, pierce, pierce and transform us. And so as we're beginning a new semester, I exhort you, set a pattern of, in your life. How are you personally going to be in the word of God? And are you in the word of God with a group of believers that you're learning to, to trust? And you're allowing them access into your life and you're reaching into their life and you're praying deeply and significantly for one another and you're in the word together. And you're challenging one another daily. Are you letting God's will be done in your life? You need that. Otherwise, we just limp along as we've always lived the Christian life, and we don't experience following the pattern of Jesus Christ. So as we close, what I'd like for us to do is let's just take a few moments before the Lord and say, God, where are you telling me to change the pattern of my life so I can follow the example of Christ? Maybe there's an area that you need to just submit your will to the Father Maybe it's, you, need, you need genuine fellowship, time in the word. Ask the Lord to speak directly to you, and then let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that our will just doesn't work. We foolishly cling to it time after time after time. I pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom to relinquish our own will and submit to yours. I pray, Father, throughout this semester you would continue to teach us how to follow the, the example of Jesus Christ, following in his footsteps. And I pray, Father, that you would make us dangerous to the kingdom of darkness, that you would be able to take us and hold us up before the host of heaven, and that we would bring honor and glory to your name and shame to Satan as we follow the pattern of Christ. Father, I pray that you do that for this church. Make our lives genuinely different Father, thank you for Jesus Christ who gave us forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and the gift of the Spirit living inside of us. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.